The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, the New York Review of Taylor Swift edition. It's Wednesday, November 5th, 2014. On today's show, Taylor Swift's new record, 1989, is here. It's platinum. It's swallowing the known universe. And we'll discuss with Slate's in-house pop semiotician, Carl Wilson. And then the New York Review of Books has turned 50, and Martin Scorsese has made an HBO documentary on what is arguably the finest literary journal this country has ever produced. And finally, street harassment. Is it a gender issue, a class issue, a race? issue or that ultimately vexed thing all three at once. Joining me today is Slate's editor-in-chief, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Julia, before we, uh, before we tuck in here, what, uh, what kind of business do we have? I don't know that we have that much business. We are doing a live show in New York on November 17th, but it is sold out. That's the Superfest East with the hang-up folks and the politics folks. But the politics guys are doing their annual conundrums show, which is one of my favorites, and begat the memorable would-you-rather-be-a-fish-or-a-tree conversation a few years ago in Chicago on November 12th. And tickets for that are still available at slate.com slash chaigabfest. So sign on up if you're, if you're in the Chicago area. All right. Well, uh, tucking in here, it's Taylor Swift's rollout week. We're all just living in it. The little country star who could has turned into a global pop diva. Swift's new album, 1989, is here. Why 1989? Was it the beginning of the end of global tyranny? The velvet revolution of Václav Havel? Maybe the end of modernism as personified by Samuel Beckett dying in Paris in 1989? No, 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 no. It's the year that Tay-Tay was born. Look alive, people. Before we get going with Carl Wilson, who is, of course, Slate's music critic, let's listen to a cut from the album. All right. Well, that, in case you don't know, is the monster hit Shake It Off, which went to number one. I think based on how often it gets played and replayed in my household, I think it's been uh, out there for at least uh, several weeks. But Carl, I don't you're going to have to pardon me. I'm just a little cynical when it comes to Taylor Swift. I have a hard time believing that she really is the that this kind of monster global brand really did start out as the songwriting every girl in Nashville as we're meant to believe. Where are we in the arc of uh, Taylor Swiftum? And then we'll get into what you think of this uh, record. Oh, my God. The ghost of Jody Rosen is rattling his chains in the corner <laughs> over here. Carl, you got to take up the mantle. <laughs> uh, I'm up for it. Well, Steve, I think I, definitely there is more to the story than meets the eye on a lot of levels. And, you know, there's one of the one of my favorite things about the backstory of Taylor is that she's actually a stockbroker's daughter from Pennsylvania. But she moved to Nashville when she was 14 to seek um, a songwriting contract and became the youngest ever signed songwriter on Music Row. And that stuff is authentic. She is the creator of Taylor Swift. And so th- there's always this tension, I think, between the industry and the sort of showbiz story that we're sold and the fact that there is this kind of auteur at the center of it who is creating that story along with us. And I I think, you know, we are now watching her most sort of self-consciously stage-managed moment in this supposed pivot to pop, which is really, you know, a pivot that she's been making for years now. But this is this is kind of the just the climax of that story in a lot of ways. All right, well, dig, dig in a little further there because that's interesting. She's pivoting from what to what and and, uh, and how does she pull it off? Well, I think that what she was pivoting from was almost a sort of genre of country teen pop that she more or less invented into a full-on kind of 2014 pop diva who's competing with everybody from Beyonce down to Miley Cyrus, down to Charlie XCX, you know, down to Katy Perry, who she takes some 
careful shots at in this, you know, partly to establish that she is playing on that ground. You know, having beef is part of the, that kind of pop world in a way that it's not part of country. So there's all these moves that she makes, and you know, the way too trumpeted move to New York is part of that. Everything, everything about it is kind of saying this is a new Taylor now, even though in many ways she's been using some of these sounds and lots of this language for a lot of years. Do you like the album, Carl? Yeah, I really like the album. I would cut maybe four songs from it, um, and then it would be perfect. But those songs pass by and don't bother me much, and then I'm completely swept away by it again. She's she's just so good at presenting the small lyrical details that give you this sense of an emotional stake while also giving you this sort of precision-made perfectly assembled pop arrangements working on this album with Max Martin and Shellback who you know through, from Robin through Britney Spears through to Taylor have been kind of kings of this kind of work and and sh- and she's deliberately calling on the very best collaborators to put her right in the middle of the pop marketplace that way I, I love the intimate use of her first name Carl it is a great touch it humanizes <laughs> it humanizes this synth- synthetic doll creature you're the one who called her Tay Tay I, yes, with the with I I shoved as much irony into the timbre of my voice as I could, but um, I'll have to shove a little more. Apparently, Dana, what do you think about Taylor Swift? You don't strike me as a you don't strike me as a dyed in the wool Swiftian somehow. Well, I mean, I don't know. Actually, I bristle at your description of her as a synthetic pop doll or whatever you called her. I mean, that doesn't seem at all accurate for the actual history that that Carl was just recounting of who this songwriter is. I do think she sounds more like a, a synthetic pop doll on this record than she ever has before, if only because her voice is more processed than it's ever been. I have to say, I'm gonna I'm gonna split the difference because I'm. Kind Kind of an authenticist, if whatever the word is, an authenticist for the old Taylor Swift. I kind of miss the uh, the country crooner of the first couple of albums, which we talked about here on the show with Jody back when they came out. Like I love Tim McGraw, you know that dorky sort of ode to to country music, or that song she writes about shopping with her mom. You know, just these kind of songs about suburban teendom that had more of a country flavor, and and you heard her her own natural voice in them. But that said, she is still a very canny songwriter. I think the way she kind of stages herself as a young grown up, you know this newly arrived in New York. She's kind of creating this this stage on which to emerge as a pop star. And at times it gets a little old that that's sort of what every song is about. They're all songs about, you know, creating this new self and placing herself in this new context. But but she does it very, very well. I, I'm, I'm thinking of this line from, I think it's Wildest Dreams, that very Lana Del Rey sounding song, where she says over and over again in the chorus, she says something about like, baby, please remember me in a nice dress looking at the sunset. <laughs> it's just such a funny teenage dream of wanting to be remembered as this kind of hallmark, you know, card personification. Pretty girlhood. She's standing in a nice dress at the bedroom window looking at the sunset. Like, you know, there's, there's been a lot of sex in that song, right? Oh, yeah. I'm not, even so, saying, you know? I'm not even talking about being a pure little girl because she also stages her own sexuality over and over again, most notably in Blank Space, which I think we should listen to, which is this very kind of flirty, provocative song that's essentially saying, you know, go ahead and fall for me and I'm going to make you suffer because I'm completely crazy. Let's listen to a clip. Asked to meet you where you been. I could show you incredible things. Madness, heaven, sin Saw you there and I thought Oh my God, look at that face You look like my next mistake Love's a game, wanna play New money, suit and tie I can read you like a magazine Ain't it funny, rumors fly And I know you heard about me So hey, let's be friends I'm dying to see how this one ends in my hand, I can make the bad guys good for a weekend. So it's gonna be forever, or it's gonna go down. How can you listen to this shit? I gotta tell you, <laughs> I mean, I, I can't contain my loathing for this any longer. The business plan here all along has been modeling behavior for girls one age cohort down from her own, which is why she is, quote, growing up in public with each album. I swear to God, this is how she came about. They programmed a drone at Roswell to fly over suburbia looking for the anti-Britney. Steve, what is and wrong with you? I, 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 I how do you not? Taylor Swift. And they've rolled her out so carefully and so She has rolled herself out. Have you no You're, respect for this act designed, of authorship? She, is designed she has designed herself. Believe. Why are you depriving her of her authorship of this? It's 
it's it's weird, Steve. I mean, it's the one thing is... to object to her pop sounds, but like she's the person who's who's driving this narrative, and it's you know it's like a young woman writing her story I mean, of detect- growing up, which is a thing that people actually have to do and deal with. I, and I just I detect no evidence of actual human individuality in her music. Setting that aside, let's talk about the one place where my cynicism seems to be echoed in the public discourse about this woman, which is her. New York song. Carl, what do you make of that song? What do you make of its significance? Why do you think there's a backlash against it? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's kind of the worst song she's ever put out, so that's part of the reason there's a backlash <laughs> against it. Um, but And it, it, it is this very self-conscious gesture. I mean, so much so that, you know, there was a marketing plan with the New York Tourism Board or something before it was ever released. All of these things. So, sure, there's lots to be cynical about there. My defense of that song is that, you know, I, one of the ways that this album is really striking to me kind of more than ever because it's in this kind of new mode in which artifice rather than this kind of sincerity playing is such a big part of it. I think that you can kind of look at this album as almost just like a a film scenario, that it's really, you know, staging that kind of more openly than, than she's ever done before. And if you think of it as the beginning of the film, if you think of it as the scene in which, like, the naive central character arrives in New York and kind of just thinks all the cliched things about New York, but by the end of the story of this album, she'll be older and sadder and wiser and will have had these experiences, that makes it seem a little less crappy to me. It makes it seem a little more self-consciously that she's not just playing dumb for the sake of playing dumb, but playing dumb for the sake of a, of a story. But wait, I, wait, Steve, you are you keep deflecting questions away and not letting me probe the tender wound of why you hate Taylor Swift so much. Are you just mad that she wrote a book about the 80s before you did? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? I, I don't understand it, really. I mean, she's she's like a pop star. Like, I guess it's not the kind of music you like to listen to, although plenty of the sounds here and the sonic influences are actually, I think, bands you do like. Like, why does she bother you more than like Rihanna or something. I, I can only plead the utter guilelessness of my own embittered cynicism, which is to me, it always felt like a rollout that there was a discourse that was gathering up around Britney when Britney basically blew up and couldn't sustain her stardom anymore about her confusion, her vacuity, the fact that she had no authorship, uh, ownership claim on her own artistic development or product. And it, it's just important when people stop drinking Coke to, you know, hand them a Pepsi or, you know, or, oh, people want to be healthier. So let's crank out some mass produced fruit juice. I mean, I just feel strongly that she's product. That's what she is. And she always has been. And, and let me finish And that. What offends me about that, because there's plenty of product out there that's similar. Uh, I, what offends me about her more than Katy Perry is there is a pretense to an old paradigm of authorship of the singer songwriter, which to me is almost, not entirely, but almost entirely faked here. And to me, that's just sad. But what's faked about it when she's writing her songs? I, I think these songs are, I hear them as flowing through a focus group, whether real or implied, before they're actually flowing through anything like an idiosyncratic individual's sensibility or take on the world. And I feel like this album is the culmination of that. But listen, I'm not the interesting person here. Carl is the one who wrote, to my mind, an absolutely brilliant, what was it, Carl, four or 5,000 word essay on this album. I want to hear more about what you think of it. Deflection once more. Although I am also interested in what Carl thought of it. I mean, I, I thought your point about her, and we can come back to Shake It Off for this, Carl, but her decisions about exactly which pop stars to set herself up against and which pop stars to not try and go toe-to-toe with was really interesting. I mean, you talk about how Shake It Off is the opening salvo, particularly the video that dropped a few weeks before the album came out, are basically her setting the boundaries of which corners of the pop landscape she plans to conquer. Could you talk a little bit about that point? Yeah, I mean, the video is this very you know, semi-comic kind of set of skits basically about the fact that Taylor can't dance and and climaxing with her basically dancing with what looked like a bunch of buddies and fans and sort of this Benetton world of, of goofy young person dancing, which is really all set up to declare, I am not going to be the kind of pop star who will give you that kind of show. I'm not a showgirl. I am the awkward white girl singer-songwriter, even though I am also going to be the biggest pop diva in the world. Right. So she's playing both sides of that fence very cannily. I mean, one of the things that surprises me about Steve's 
reaction to her is that, you know, she is setting herself up very deliberately on the opposite kind of end of the scale of someone like Beyonce or Rihanna in the sense that those kind of R&B moves of like technical mastery and having this kind of mask of perfection and persona that keep you from sensing the person inside because that's a power move to sort of remain mysterious on that level. Taylor's at the opposite end of that scale. And I don't deny that it's strategic and thought out, but I think it also is a real recognition of where her strengths are. One, one of the things that my whole piece is about, to some degree, is about the fact that I think this sort of game of playing confessional is in many ways a game of somebody who's more savvy and strategic than that. But it's also to a purpose. It's also actually meant to be about a young woman's consciousness and, and fans' relationship with that. I mean, I guess that's why I keep bothering Steve instead of you, Carl, even though Steve is right and your ideas about this album are more interesting. But I think the thing <laughs> I think the thing that bothers me about what bothers Steve is that I find her strategy to be like empowering, like an empowering example of a talented young woman having smart ideas what she should do with her business and her career. Like I think that's genuinely exciting. And I like the way some of the music sounds, I, I tend to like the lyrics a lot. I think that the songs sort of sound a little bit like other similar songs recently. I really don't like the sound of Shake It Off, which also reminds me of Happy, which I hated and all about that bass. <laughs> there's sort of this like sock hop horns sound. Like, it feels like at every any given moment right now, there's one song that like feels sort of 50s. And anyway, I don't like any of them. But because um, you hate joy, Julia. I, d- I, don't, joy. I don't want to bop to music. I don't like I don't want to like bounce to music. That's not my, like, I, there are other... She wants to strut, not bop. I, I'm anti-bop, I guess. But but anyway, I like, to me, this act of self-creation is interesting and admirable and not necessarily cynical. So I think that's just why I keep... There's something that feels like anti-girl power about Steve's anti-Taylorism. I mean, I have to take offense as the father of two daughters. Like, I just would not hold this person up as a role model to my daughters. And the implication that I wouldn't hold up, like, genuinely empowered women as their role models to me is offensive. It's like, she's a pop star. She's been packaged to manipulate the emotions of girls exactly my girl's age. And I see how she plays upon them. She is a can of Coke. She's nothing more than that. Like, to impute interiority to it is a category error. I think I think that is a not listening to enough Taylor Swift error. I mean, I think we could go back right now and dig up songs from her first few albums that are Taylor Swift with an acoustic guitar singing a country song that she wrote that nobody wrote with her. I don't if that's not a singer songwriter, I don't know what is. As for holding her up for a role model for your daughter, I mean, I would sooner hold up, I don't know, Malala Yousafzai or something. But if she's going to listen to a pop girl singer, I'd much rather have my eight-year-old listen to Taylor Swift songs and think about her story than Katy Perry songs, which to me are just all full of this kind of sleazy innuendo and celebration of blackout drinking. All right. So in my ongoing quest to not be the biggest dick in the world, um, Dana, I trust you when you say that you regard her highly as a songwriter, especially based on her earlier work, is give me homework. What's my Taylor Swift homework? What's the song I should listen to to see this uh, quality in her work? I don't know. Help me out, Julia. What are some of those good early Taylor country high school moments? What's the song about the screen door slamming? Oh, that one's so good. I'm going to try and not notice that Steve says he trusted you, Dana, when you said she was a songwriter, but <laughs> yeah, left Julia, me, who made the same talking. argument, out of a complete... Um, by the way, the great song about the screen door slamming is by Bruce Springsteen. It's called Thunder Road, but try, try another one. Well, you should listen to A Distaff Compliment, our song by Taylor Swift. It's a very good song about a screen door slamming. And the whole album wow. that's on, the whole album that's on is full of, the, of stuff that whether you like it or not, you cannot say it is not the voice of a specific young woman writing about a specific life. Yeah. I also love Fearless on that album. And um, I think that's also the album with You Belong With Me. There's great songs on that album. Mm. Go back and discover the country gem you've missed. All right. I'll do it. All right. Well, we can uh, we can conclude this uh, discussion confident that the album is going to swallow the known universe whole, whether uh, we like it or don't like it. But it sounds like you guys are really into it. Listeners, uh, check it out. Come uh, tell me I'm crazy. Carl Wilson, of course, is the music critic for Slate. Carl, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's always just an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I really would send our listeners to go check out Carl's essay about Taylor Swift. It's a tour de force. It's not a phrase I use often or lightly, but it really it's is. It's true. It's much more than a record review, that piece. It's, it's good stuff. It, it, Carl manages to describe the entire album through the metaphor of Taylor Swift's navel and the fact that there's no photographic evidence that she has one. And it's 
really smart and funny <laughs> and awesome. Mm-hmm. So go read it. of woman born. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, moving on. The 50-Year Argument is a documentary co-directed by Martin Scorsese and David Tedeschi. It recounts the history of the literary and intellectual journal, whatever you want to call it, the New York Review of Books. It's a mix of archival footage, fresh interviews, and the film shows everyone from Norman Mailer to Susan Sontag to Noam Chomsky to, more recently, the novelists uh, and essayists Colm Toybin and Zoe Heller, among many, many others. The list goes on and on. Why make a film about a magazine? Dana, I'm going to start with you on that. Um, Did it make for a compelling topic for a film? In a strange way, it kind of did. I mean, at the same time that this this movie is almost laughably stodgy in its in its framing of a what could be considered a very stodgy publication, there's also like a lot of passion running through the veins of this documentary, mainly because of the old footage that Scorsese and Tedeschi rounded up with. You know, things like as you mentioned, an incredible moment when Susan Sontag asks Norman Mailer a question after a panel on feminism in the 70s, and you just see how red hot all of those questions were. You know, questions of kind of questions that now I think in the feminist discourse are taken for granted, right? That men just can't sort of get up on a stage and start insulting women or write about how they want to murder their wives or try to murder their wives and kind of get away with it. You know, just the intensity of the feminist debate at that time was fantastic to see. At the same time, as as I was saying, the way this documentary is framed is really quite old school to the degree that there's this Dave Brubeck song that keeps coming back over and over and over again, this kind of jazz riff setting up the scenes in the office. And there's such a a determinedly nostalgic bent to the framing of this whole documentary that at times I kind of wanted to shake it out of its slumber a little bit. But I learned a lot. Well, Dana says, Julia, Dana says stodgy. Let me counter that a little bit and say they organized, I thought, the film very carefully around large historical themes in order to get you out of the office of the New York Review of Books, which probably is a somewhat quiet, tweety, stodgy place. But lots of Uh, fun to see what goes on there, naturally. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I found every inch of this charming, by the way, um, and and moving. But but anyway, so feminism, civil rights, uh, the Arab Spring, the Velvet Revolution, you know, major social, political, cultural upheavals and events of the last 50 years, and how this particular journal covered them. Was that a persuasive uh, scaffolding for you? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a canny scaffolding. It it made the work of the magazine feel very urgent and very connected to the major, you know, political upheavals and transformations of the last 50 years. And I think, you know, when you first hear New York Review of Books, you might think that. You might think about literary criticism. You might think about literary fighting. It was framed very politically and less literarily. And I thought that that was smart and interesting and made a persuasive argument about the role of this publication in American letters and global politics for the last 50 years. I also thought the framing of the documentary was stodgy, but the argument of the documentary was that the magazine was actually fairly radical in its iconoclasm and its pushing against what other publications all said in a pack when it came to the Iraq war and a number of other questions. And... Um, It was fun to see. I mean, to me, it's just a portrait of hungry minds, and in particular, the hungry mind of Bob Silvers. And it's just, it's very fun. For me, the most fun parts of it were were watching him conduct editorship in a way that feels very time delimited. I mean, I don't know many other editors who are like dictating lengthy emails to their assistants from cabs as they pull up to the building, right? Or um, just the, the kind of phone manner of the phone calls in which he said, I have a book here. It's already out for review. So it's, you know, clearly the etiquette of like, well, I'm not asking you to review it, but I thought you should read it because it seems like you'd be interested. And I forget what the book was called that he was talking about. It was was some sort of anti-technology seeming book that looked like it had a bundle of lurid wires on the front and seemed like it might perhaps be promulgating against our wired world. But in any event, I just, the, the manners, the like the old school manners of magazine making. Oh, completely agree. also fun. And the editor-writer yeah. relationships that are described are so dreamy and luxurious in their intensity and, and duration. You know, just these people that worked with it, with writers for a generation to kind of help shape their writing. In this beautiful interview with Joan Didion near the end where she talks about Bob Silvers, the editor of the review, encouraging her to go cover politics when she knew nothing about domestic politics. And just seeing her vulnerability that she went home and cried all night after they had an argument about her piece. And I loved those mm-hmm. histories of editors yeah. and writers. I mean, certainly one of my favorite mo- uh, moments in the movie, which I loved from beginning to end, was uh, another one with Joan Didion where her Bob Silvers, the editor of the New York Review, discusses assigning her a piece about the Central Park joggers. Uh, or maybe Didion brought it to Silvers, I can't remember. And the point was, back in the late 80, 80s, when these young African-American men had been very young, they were some as young, I think, as 14, were eventually charged, 
you know, were accused of uh, uh, raping and beating to the point of near death a woman in Central Park. Didion was the one who had the courage to say, you know, there's a long history here of uh, young African-American men being accused of uh, raping white women. Maybe a rush to judgment isn't uh, uh, called for. And it showed you what uh, an act of intellectual courage might mean at a moment of public and heated debate. I thought that was amazing. I love the fact that the documentary took pains not to make itself about internecine inside baseball fights among the New York uh, intellectual crew, which is what a documentary about, say, the partisan review would almost have to end up being about. Uh, And this one, not so much, though I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the funniest line if not entirely politically correct line in the whole documentary, which is Norman Mailer's review of Tom Wolfe's A Man in Full, in which he says, and I'm paraphrasing, reading it was like making love to a 300-pound woman. Once she gets on top, you're done. Fall in love or be asphyxiated, which is, <laughs> which is one of the great literary put-downs of the last 50 years, and they should be proud to have it in their pages. But let me say briefly why I think this magazine, a documentary about an important American institution is worth seeing. Why is this an important American institution? I think it's found precisely in its origins, which was the newspaper strike of, correct me if I'm wrong, 62 or 1963, right around there. And Elizabeth Hardwick had leveled a broadside against the New York Times Book Review for being banal, unliterary, complacent, boring, and yet somehow also pious and self-important. And she said, none of these, this is totally improper there ought to be a decent book review and they on all the publishers the business model of a book review is all the publishers are forced to advertise in your pages it's actually enormously lucrative business model but it was something of a monopoly and when the newspaper strike happened there was a business model opening to create a new review and get all of that advertising while the times worked out its labor issues and that's exactly what they did and it's been a success and a financial success it should be said uh, ever since they don't discount their subscription prices they ships to 100 120,000 full paying subscribers it's done very well but the important thing about hardwick's argument is an enormous amount of power uh Uh, and global leadership devolved to the United States after the war, and that included cultural power. Uh, And what was interesting is that the art world adapted very quickly because art has to follow the money. But Paris remained the global intellectual capital of the world. And then the second thing that happened was you had this massive expansion after the war of the academy, of the university system. But that meant that American intellectuals were in danger of losing their uh, connection to a wider reading public. And it seemed to me what is unique about the New York Review in the early 60s is it addressed both of these situations head on. It said, you know, there's no reason that the United States can't, in, in addition to being a military, global, industrial, economic power, there's no reason it also can't be a, an intellectual power. Uh, or an intellectual leader, and there's no reason that being that, its intellectuals can't address a wider public. And it didn't matter to them how much this went against the grain of the supposed character of the United States as anti-intellectual. And uh, in order to do that, it's true they had to attack a straw man, but that is in fact what you know, post-war intellectual culture looked like. It looked like the New York Times Book Review, and they said, no, it should be something uh, you know deeper and more unapologetically literary, and I think that they did a great thing. And it continues to be a great thing. I think the New York Review of Books continues to be a great thing, and I think that this documentary is worth watching if you are a fan of the lights and legends that have studded its pages. If you are interested in the future of journalism and want to understand the economic realities that make such journalism possible, you will learn nothing from this documentary about how this thing has endured, what what the business model is. You know, there's sort of like a one interview with the web guy, but there's no grappling with how a shift in culture from print to digital might affect it. I mean, it it, it is not interested in those questions at all. And I get that many of the people who are fans of the publication and might watch this documentary also may not be interested in those questions. But I almost think it's irresponsible to make a work lauding this publication without engaging those questions at least somewhat. Maybe that's what I mean about feeling like it's preserved in amber a little bit. And it's worth noting that Bob Silver's commissioned this more or less. I mean, this is pretty much a sort of 50-year anniversary celebration of the magazine that Martin Scorsese made because he loves the people of the magazine. So it has that behind it as well. No, I'm going to disagree with you completely on this because their business model is not threatened by the internet in the least. Their business model is abiding as long as they can replace 
their older readers as they, you know, pardon the blunt expression, as they die off with younger readers. Um, that's their only challenge because the business model. Oh, even oh only that. <laughs> oh, wow. OK, then they shouldn't have talked about it at all in the documentary. No, but they're not. But but unlike <laughs> unlike even the New Yorker, they're not threatened by the substitution effect of the Internet. Right. And they're not affected by advertising rates, the, the plunge in advertising rates. That's not their business model. Their business model is never discounting a, subscri- a subscription one penny and assuming that the hundred or so thousand people who get this publication are willing to pay. I can't remember what it is, but it's certainly north of 50 bucks and maybe approaching 100 bucks a year to read it. The only question is whether you can keep that number of people relatively constant. And the That's an interesting question. That's that is an, an open one. Can you train a new generation but, of young readers that looks to, I don't know, M plus one for interesting literary thought and expects to find it online and expects to think about it but in that that's way? Also, but the reason, one of the reasons they don't address that in the documentary, it's a delicate subject of succession. It's a succession crisis when Bob Silver's God Bless Him is no longer around to edit it. The, the magazine is was supremely under the control of its two founding editors for its entire history. Barbara Epstein died, I think, five or six years ago, and now it's fallen only to Bob Silvers, who, by the way, the smartest literary journalists I have ever met all say the same thing. He is the best editor they have ever been edited by. Bob Silvers is not just some silvery eminence who pours his big goblet of red wine and then sits back and watches everyone toasts his own genius every week. He line edits that magazine down to the syllable. And if he feels as though your logical connectors are weak, he makes you fill them in. It's one of the reasons why every essay is both brilliant, but also very easy to read. And its argument is always plain and easy to follow. The real question is a double question. The first is, who's going to edit it when Bob Silvers is no longer editing it? Uh, Presumably that person is going to be younger. And then the related question of to what degree are they going to be able to reach out to younger writers, I think is the first move, who then in turn speak to younger readers. I don't think that's going to be a problem because younger, frankly, is a relative term to a publication like the New York Review. They're not talking about replacing their 95-year-old readers with 25-year-old readers, which other publications have to obsess over. They're talking about replacing them with 45-year-old, 55-year-old readers who they'll then have locked up for 30 or 40 years because they are a monopoly on this kind of quality discourse. I think you're being very optimistic, and it was very cavalier of the documentary to not talk about any of these things. Even everything you just said, I would have been interested to hear in a documentary, even if they, they were just making interviewed it. Steve. I, I, you know, I mean, I, it's fine. It's it is it does read like the video uh, toast that you play at the party, looking back and on on the 50 years of a great publication, and it's worthy and super fascinating. But if someone is interested in thinking about how this kind of you know fascinating, marvelous, incredibly learned, I mean, just the the it's just so fun to be in the presence of the mind of Bob Silvers in this documentary, right? He's like, he's like, okay, well, I want to publish this recent story from this Italian collection. Is there any problem with us translating? So it's clear he or someone has been like reading these stories in Italian and deciding that they, you know, that, that, that this essay or story needs to be in the magazine. And then he's giving interviews in French. I mean, just the incredible, voracious learnedness and engagement with ideas of all sorts from all over. It's singular and it's rare, and it's clearly a huge part of what's made the publication vital and interesting. And, you know, the question of how that will continue and for whom it will continue and whether it can continue is interesting. So I felt that was missing. Mm-hmm. I mean, for my own part, do you guys still subscribe? This this inspired me to resubscribe because seeing what goes on behind the scenes and, for example, the detail that someone says, which seems incredible to me, that he and Barbara Epstein would read all the books that were up for review, even if they weren't reviewing them so that they could edit the review better. That's just crazy. But anyway, this inspired me to resubscribe. But I had let my subscription lapse because this thing is big and thick and hard to keep up with. And those pieces are really long. And a lot of those same ideas and issues and questions are being talked about in other places a lot sooner, right? Because it's a print publication that takes a while to get around to things. But do you guys subscribe and read and keep this in your magazine rack? I let mine lapse. But Steve, oh Steve's God. not worried. <laughs> it's my it's my desert. It's my desert island publication. Always has been, always will be, period. End of story. Next topic. All right. Well, the documentary is The 50-Year Argument. It is uh, available on HBO Go and uh, probably will be more widely available soon enough. Very curious to know what kind of overlap there is between our listenership and the New York Review. I bet it's actually slimmer than one might suspect. But uh, give us your thoughts. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest and uh, tell us uh, what you think. All right. Moving on. 
Hollaback is an organization devoted to ending street harassment, and last week they posted a video of a woman walking around New York City for about 10 hours. They edited the video down to, I believe, under two minutes. But anyway, it shows her being serially harassed uh, more than 100 times by men as she walks completely innocently and completely silently, uh, tunnel-visioned around New York City. Okay, well, there's a lot to discuss here, as Hannah Rosen pointed out on Slate. It's not only a video of a young woman who's being harassed. It's a video of a young white woman who's being harassed by mostly black and Latino men. The subject has been also bandied about the Internet. We'll get there in a minute. But, Julia, I want to start with you. What's your reaction to this video as a woman who walks around the streets of New York City? I guess I finally have to say this out loud, don't I? Because it's a podcast. (laughs) You agreed to talk about it. (laughs) I generally don't feel that street harassment is the most urgent feminist issue facing us. And I find the collective, there's like a moment where it feels like everybody just really wants to talk about street harassment and how terrible it is. And I don't identify with that as a thing that I should be very excited about as a woman and a feminist and a person. And, you know, this is already beginning to touch on the race and class issues that this issue inevitably touches on, particularly in a city like New York, and particularly with this video, which was edited the way it was edited. But, you know, I've lived in neighborhoods with very different street cultures, very different racial makeups, and very different economic backgrounds. And there are different modes of interaction on the street in different places in New York City. And sometimes that involves a lot of talking and chit-chat. And sometimes that chit-chat is like aesthetic or whatever. I don't know. I, I I have never felt it to be like a traumatic skin off my back to be like, hey, or just keep walking or just ignore. I don't know. It, it's not it's not a major player in my psychic space. I have been in places where like I feel like alone in Italy at how old was I? 19 there where it felt I felt in danger sometimes. And that was scary. And Everybody has their own lines and everybody's space um, feels sensitive in different ways. So I get that things that I, as a six foot tall woman, don't find problematic. Other people do and they find really emotionally problematic. And that's why they're upset about things like this and they really want to discuss it and feel like it should be a front burner feminist issue. But I, I just don't. I never I've never been wildly excited about this issue. I don't know. Dana, call me a bad feminist. <laughs> What's wrong with me? No, I never thought it through that clearly, but I have to admit this is also not something I get super hot and bothered about as, you know, a, a gender problem that can be really addressed or fixed in a meaningful way. I mean, not without not without going way deeper and starting to deal with, you know, other other issues, whether it's race or class or sexism or education or I don't know. I, I think there's something very, very basic about you know, the, the desire of men to look at women and assess them, right? And whether or not you hear about it, I was reading somebody writing about the video saying that, you know, men don't see this happen, right? They literally don't see it happen. I think it was Amanda Hess on Slate that wrote this because when they're walking down the street with a woman, another guy is not going to harass her, right? So it's something that is only essentially experienced by a woman who is seen to be a solitary actor on the street. And I guess insofar as men who don't catcall and therefore don't know catcalling really exists see this happen, I guess it could be instructive and illuminative for that group of men. But I can't imagine that someone who is a catcaller, what are we going to do? Show this video to every guy driving a truck who's ever whistled at a woman? It just seems like that's a, as you say, Julia, that's the kind of a degree of um, interaction that's going to happen in a densely populated city and you won't always be able to control what comes into your ears. Yeah, densely populated and incredibly plural. And, you know, it's just the virtue of New York City is everyone thrown together in very tight spaces. You know, and the question is whose norms are going to prevail in that common space. It's unclear that it's going to be hollabacks. Um, What was eye-opening for me as a man was how when she doesn't respond. So so another important part of the video for those of our listeners who haven't seen it is that she just tunnel visions the whole way through. She doesn't acknowledge anybody. She looks straight ahead. And and so part of what the video is about is how men react when their cat call become amp it up with a degree of hostility um, because they haven't deigned to talk to you, which happens incredibly frequently on the video. And to the point that some men follow her and continue talking to her and just cannot accept the fact that she won't acknowledge what in their mind is a compliment. And they take that as an insult. And then they do become hostile and threatening. So the hard 
part of the video, the initial hard part of the video for me is where are you going to draw that line between someone who lets a, you know, slightly over lubricated comment slide out of the left side of their mouth while they continue walking in the opposite direction and someone who becomes a genuine unwanted annoyance to someone who becomes, you know, guilty of a kind of verbal of, uh, verbal assault. It's really hard to know where, you know, good manners end and, 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 and legal exigencies kick in. Well, and, uh, that's, and that's the thing that's really fascinating about this, which is, and totally galling, and, and where, you know, I can feel myself getting annoyed at the earlier me on this segment saying what I said, which is, the, there is a way to deflate and deflect these comments, which is you engage in like this neutral kind of deflecting way. And in fact, the like total glassy stare non-engagement is provocative in as as you see. And that to me was the most illuminating thing about the video is how not just being like giving the nod, acknowledging that you kind of heard it, keeping walking, keeping up your brisk pace, looking like you've got places to be, the, the non-acknowledgement becomes an incendiary act. And what that shows is that it does mean there is this like burden on women walking through any situation where they're getting catcalled. Like those catcalls take up psychic space in her day because the way to have that not become, uh, I mean, you know, who knows? That guy who followed her for five minutes seemed like a sociopath. That was horrifying. I yeah, remember. I agree. I don't at all mean to diminish the gen- genuine stalking behaviors that happen that are quite scary. But it is true that in real life, it's an artificial experiment, right? A guy's walking in front of her with a backpack with a camera in it for all 10 hours. And uh, and she's not. she has this sort of rule to not respond. In real life, after the person had followed you for one block, you would say, what the hell's going on here? You would rebuff them in some sort of verbal way. So, mm-hmm. right. It it it. it, it does. The conditions of the experiment change the behavior is what I'm but, saying. Uh, but is there something about the more hostile and inappropriate actions that implicates the supposedly more harmless and gallant ones, i.e., it is a demand on a woman to respond, right, that you are essentially establishing a kind of relationship between the woman, your appraisal of her and her sexuality that demands she play a specific role relative to it, which is graciously acknowledge the – I mean, because the number of men, at least on the video – who are kind of shocked and offended that she doesn't respond to their catcall, that to me was just so utterly revealing because essentially she's reserving a right to herself to walk down the street non-responsively, which, you know, all of these these men reserve for themselves, I can tell you right now. I'm sure they do. And it's like they're depriving her of that right, regardless of whether they're doing it, quote unquote, graciously or whether they're doing it, you know, sexistly and hostily. And that is what comes to the surface when, you know, there's this demand that she play a role. And it's like her it's not just her right to walk down the street unmolested. It's her right to not play the role in a gender, highly gendered and I think, you know, power power hierarchical drama with strange men on an ongoing basis. So, you know, so in a way, like this was a feminist enlightenment for Steve Metcalf. So, you know, you you win these battles one quarter inch at a time. Yeah, the video was I could clearly see how it would be eye opening to men like Steve who neither do this nor experience it. And it was eye opening to me to see the sheer volume of comments to watch the interplay between their comments and her non response. But I'm still not sure where that leaves us. Right. I mean, like on the one hand, I remember, you know, feeling like, all right, I got to pay 20 bucks for the cab home from this party because I don't want to deal with the conversations I'm going to have to have on this street to get to my house from the subway at this hour in this outfit in whatever, you know, I mean, I'm probably talking about like a duffel coat, but you know what I mean? Like just <laughs> <laughs> like I, it's it is part of any urban woman's calculus, any pedestrian woman's calculus, I think, in most cities. Right. And. I just sort of took that for granted. And when you see a video like this, you do see, okay, what this fundamentally asserts is that my body and my appearance does not belong to me. It belongs to everyone around me to comment on, weigh in on, and thus demand my time and attention because I have to pay enough attention to you to either get you to stop talking or to make sure that something more untoward is not going to happen or whatever. Like, it, it is... It, I get why it is galling. I completely get the argument for why it should be a feminist issue. But what's the solution, right? I mean, I, I get that that's a total imposition on a woman. It's an imposition on women all over the place. And, you know, we're very focused on the, the kind of dynamics of New York as a city. But everywhere, there are men of different races and classes who do this. 
but you're going to criminalize it. You're going to give it to the New York City Police Department to go after, um, you know, whichever men they deem most assaholic to women. You know, which women, which men do we think they'll go after? Do we think they're going to just equally pick up men of all races and and all economic stratospheres? all over the city? No. Yeah, you can't criminalize it. And plus, it's a free speech issue. It would be ridiculous to to limit what a person can say to another person on the street and try to police that. I just don't really quite know what we do. I mean, which maybe means awareness is the answer and videos like this are an answer. But I do, there is just fundamentally, even though I get all of the intellectual arguments for why this is important and significant, I can't get exercised about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think it's got to be an awareness issue. I totally agree. You can't you can't lend the wrong people another excuse to demonize and criminalize the behavior of young black men. You can't do it. But does so, it does it bother you guys that that just about everybody you see harassing her is a, a man of color in some way or another? But was that, that something was function- that sprung to to mind while watching it? Because honestly, when I was watching it, it all came by so fast that I wasn't quite aware of who was saying what or where the sound was coming from when she was being harassed. But I guess it is the case that you only see one or two white guys talk to her this whole two minutes. I think this is also part of what makes it interesting for this to become a collective feminist issue as opposed to a personal feminist annoyance, right? When women start talking to each other about what their experiences are here, there's been a very interesting conversation that's evolved online, right? First, there were people noticing that there were no white men in the video. Then Hannah Rosen wrote a post for Slate noting that the creators of the video acknowledged that they had had to edit out the various white male cat callers for incidental reasons, like they were looking the other direction or, or they were inaudible on the mic or something like that. And then D. Lockett had an interesting follow-up for Slate pointing out that, in fact, in her experience, white men don't catcall in the same way, uh, the same overt way, that there's sort of leering and lurking behavior that's also gross and icky, but it's less overt. And that's what's difficult. You never quite know if what's happening to you is what's universal. So I think that's what's sort of cathartic about this conversation is seeing some other woman's experience and all having the same experience to talk about, even if it is one that's somewhat affected by the nature of the experiment. It's useful. Yeah, I think I may be with you, Julie. You're articulating this much more clearly than I had, but I feel like whatever of value this video has to bring or this project of have filming a woman walking down the street for 10 hours and editing it down to two minutes has to bring it's it doesn't rise much beyond the level of a certain kind of indignation, a kind of helpless indignation after watching the video. And I'm not sure how politically useful that is as a sentiment. I don't know. I think this is a learning moment. Um, how would you guys feel if I catcalled your comments? You know, like, oh, baby, man, that use of light light toties was just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Just another day in the life. I like your syntax. Oh, baby man. I've never heard of oh, baby man. <laughs> Can I just tell Julia an even more politically not at all correct story about cat calling in which I enjoyed a cat call? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so picture the almost 40-year-old me having just had a baby three or four months before walking down the street in my neighborhood in glasses and, I don't know, jeans and a T-shirt, just feeling like a a frumpy mom Mm -hmm. and getting some sort of mild, polite, I can't remember what it was, but some sort of a a passing comment from two dudes walking by. Can you possibly see how in my isolated moment of being sure that I was an over-the-hill frump, that that might be a little bit of an I've-still-got-it feeling? Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing that's like a total third rail in these conversations is ever admitting to, like, enjoying passing flirtation with people on a stoop or the feeling of, like, someone's calling you legs and being like, I do have legs. Like, <laughs> and I know how to use them. Right? Like, I, I... But again, the issue comes back to choice, right? Like, if if you're in the right mood... And the comment is offered in the right mode and the sun is shining the right way. And you well, have... I just remember feeling shame crossing that street thinking, like, why do I have a vague feeling of triumph right now? You know, I mean, in theory, this is a crass thing that I don't enjoy having happen. But I guess at that moment in my life, I might have thought, well, it's never going to happen to me again anyway. <laughs> um, I kind of feel like an emanation from the booth of Anne wildly disagreeing with us and are you emanating? Am I am I reading your vibes right? Um, well, I, I was emanating. Um, so here's the problem for me. One, how much do I want to admit about my booty size on the Culture <laughs> Gab Fest? <laughs> and second, well, I think actually that's probably the main issue here. A bodacious like, trolley? Yes. Um, Dana, I, you just catcalled Anne. <laughs> 
for for me, moving to New York, I didn't realize how much of an issue that was going to be until I started walking around New York City and just kind of always having this constant barrage of damn, hey, baby. And then at first I was like, oh, what's this? I've never had this experience before. And then after a while, there's a certain amount of not complete and utter fear, but also just exhaustion of having to like negotiate, like, how am I going to, how am I going to interact? And so part of at least the problem for me is that what Stephen was saying is that the problem is the fact that I am not the one who's dictating this interaction. And so there's really no solution for me other than to completely disengage myself from it and get into a cab and spend 20 or $30 rather than feeling like, safe to just walk down a street and at least for me I feel like part of this has to do with like yes we don't know what the answer is going to be but at least now there's more of a conversation and maybe it's finally like reached the point where like it's one of those conversations that usually we would have just amongst ourselves but now it's like finally come to the fore so maybe now there could be more of a solution because we're finally talking about it in a very open and public way no, I think you're right. I think the conversation is good. I think the video is good. I think the, sh- the comparing of notes is good. I think street harassment is bad. All of those things are true. All of those things are true. But we somehow have to end the patriarchy itself from the bottom up, essentially, to solve a problem like that, right? I mean, rather than, as you were saying, a, a top-down crackdown on people who do it. I feel like we've learned something really important here, which is that you two, Julia and Dana, would make the creepiest guys. <laughs> You're so freaking into catcalling. It's not funny. All right. Anyway, the video is from the organization Hollaback. You can do a cursory Google search and find it if you haven't seen it. It is very worth watching, and we would love to know what you think of it. So come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and let us know. All right. Well, now is the moment in our show where we endorse. But before we do that, Julia, you had something you wanted to interject here. I have like a really embarrassing correction that I need to acknowledge from our live show in Boston a couple of weeks ago. So we all started acknowledging who we shared birthdays with because it was uh, the poet Robert Pinsky's birthday and he was a guest on our show. And I told you, Dana, you, Steve, and all of our listeners in Boston and elsewhere that I share a birthday with Britney Spears. I misremembered that. I do not actually share a birthday with Britney Spears. Is it even close? Well, I know the story, which is that for many years, I threw a joint birthday with my roommate because her birthday is December 2nd and mine is nearby. And so we always shared birthdays. And at some point, we must have looked up what all of our birthdays were. And so December 2nd, which actually I have many friends who have that birthday, Britney Spears was born on December 2nd. The pop diva who was born on my birthday is Tina Turner, which is a way cooler pop diva (laughs) anyway. So... I share my birthday with Tina Turner, and there's no shame in that game. Also, Charles Schultz. So oh, those are two excellent birthdays. Yeah, shares. I totally take it back. I have great birthday shares. I, I just needed to do the research. I apologize. I'm chagrined. I, I apologize to Britney Spears. I apologize to everybody except for Tina Turner. Thanks for holding this podcast to some standards for once. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Sorry, Steve. Now we can endorse. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dana, what do you got? All right, so I'm going to go out on a limb, be very brave, and endorse the thing with the most difficult-to-pronounce name of its author that I've ever endorsed on the GabFest. Oh, crap. If it's a Dana stumper, you know it's going to be good. <laughs> I looked this up, and I'm pretty sure this is true, but I guess Romanians, I think this is a Romanian name, or Poles, or whatever it is, can write and tell me. It's the, it's the psychologist, the experimental psychologist, Mihai Sixcent Mihai, whose name is just spelled with the most insane tangle of consonants you've ever seen in your life. And uh, I had been hearing about this guy, Mihai Sixcent Mihai, and his work for many years and other you know, works of philosophy or psychology that I would read. Um, but this is this first book that I've read. It's called Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience. And essentially, Sixcent Mihai is... He sort of invented this concept of flow, of right, of an experience that you, you get into, whether it's creating something or engaging in, you know, this podcast conversation or something that kind of engages you so completely that you lose track of your self-consciousness and kind of flow with the activity. And he did decades of research to sort of discover how this happens, why it happens, you know, what cultural conditions encourage it to happen, and essentially made this huge study of kind of human creativity and happiness, which he claims in this very persuasive introduction is one of the most understudied areas in psychology, right? We're always studying pathologies and neuroses and problems and suicide and actually talking about what 
happiness and uh, satisfaction and meaning are and sort of how to achieve them is relatively rare in serious studies that aren't just self-help books. So this is sort of like a very, very erudite self-help book in a way. And uh, and reading it over the past month or so that I've been reading it, I just feel like more than any book I've read in quite some time, it makes me rethink daily experience in a, in a completely different way. And I feel like I have a little bit more sense maybe of not how to achieve a flow state, but of at least of sort of how to wall off things that would keep it from happening. So I think if you're any kind of creative person, if you're interested in craft, you know, if you do some kind of endeavor that requires that you lose yourself in that endeavor, and honestly, what endeavor doesn't, including washing the dishes, that this, this book can really kind of make your day flow. All right. I've been hearing about that for years. I will have to check it out. Yeah, that's pretty cool. All right. Uh, Julia, what do you got? All right, Steve, I'm going to endorse one of my absolute favorite blogs today. It's a blog called ScoutingNewYork.com. It's a blog run by Nick Carr, and I just love it. And it is the blog ostensibly of a location scout in New York writing about interesting locations in New York. But to, I mean, the job of a location scout is that they find interesting places where film and television productions might want to shoot on location, you know, interesting cool-looking walls to have a conversation up against or whatever. It's a cool job, generally, but you don't hear that much about it. And the person who runs this blog has turned it into this, like, fascinating, super obsessive, super detail-oriented, super photographic, like, micro-history of these teensy-tiny monuments in New York. And one of the things that's always bothered me about the various New York City real estate sections, which I always love reading, like, whether it's in The Times or New York Mag or The Curb or the various blogs, it's always fun to read recreationally about the spaces in New York. Um, But it's always very concerned with, like, residential spaces you might live in one day. And there's not that many places that are excited about the weird curios. You know, The Times has that column cityscapes, maybe it's called, where they talk about interesting, august-like historical buildings from the 1860s and how they were preserved. But Scouting New York, I can't tell you how many times I've gone on this blog and like some weirdo-looking parking garage that has like strange ornament on it that I've noticed and thought nobody else ever thought about. It turns out there's like 3,000 words and 75 pictures all on the history of like how exactly this garage must have gotten that strange ornament and, you know, how you might be interested in using it for a movie. And I just was looking at it, pulling it up here is a classic example. I was pulling it up here to figure out what some recent posts have been so I could share it with listeners. And there's a post on the abandoned storefronts of Williamsburg, including literally the storefront that my sister was around the corner from my sister's apartment for years that she always had her eye on. Is like, that's my dream storefront. I, I want to like open my dream shop there in, you know, in the like fantasy small business that everybody has in their head. That's hers. And like, there's all, there's this whole detailed appreciation of this grotty looking weirdo sort of burnt out former barbershop storefront that she always had her eye on. This guy just has a great eye for detail. And um, if you are a lover of the city of New York or curious about how interesting film locations are found and selected, you should read scoutingny.com. I'm so glad you endorsed that. I love that blog, and I can't believe we haven't talked about it on the show before. They have a great Twitter feed, too, that's worth following if you're a tweeter. All right. Well, a friend of mine and I have this running conversation. I've probably referred to it before on the show, but um, the question is, who's the fifth greatest rock band, right? Because the top four slots are definitely you know, fixed in stone, which is Beatles, Rolling Stones, Velvet Underground, and The Clash. And then once you get to number five, it could be, <laughs> who's it going to be? It could be it could be The Who, it could be Led Zeppelin, it could be The Pistols, it could be Pink Floyd. I mean, you know, once you start rolling out the names, I mean, there are just so many people who could be number five. I have to say, the other day, I was driving with my kids, and uh, the song Substitute came on the radio, and it's it's just one of the great Who songs of all time. I mean, not to be slightly gallows about it, but if the Who's airplane had gone down in 1971, I definitely think they'd be number five without question. Those first, like, you know, I mean, like a quick one is one of the great rock albums ever made. The early Who is really just a radically underappreciated rock band. There's, you know, the Kinks get revived as the counterintuitive favorite. Uh, every few years to go along with the Beatles and the Stones. The great thing about being almost completely forgotten or derided is every now and then, you know, your charms sneak up on on your would-be listeners. And that was the case with this. So I'm going to endorse the early uh, rock and roll albums of The Who and specifically the song Substitute, which is just uh, timeless. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman and our intern is uh, Josephine Livingston. The new managing editor of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cultfest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and the wonderful Carl Wilson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you. We'll see you next week. When I was a little girl, I had a bright dog. Only dog I've ever owned. Now I love you just the way.